Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. You've been on the show before, but I will let you introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Isaac. I'm uh, honestly a Champagne Sharks super fan. I'm so thrilled to be here with Trevor. I do a couple of podcasts, Night Rule, which is kind of a culture and politics podcast, also kind of general interest talk show, plus uh, a hockey podcast that's a lot of fun. So if there's any Oilers fans out there, Edmonton Oilers fans, check out Handkerchief Dynasty. But to be honest, I'm really just here to uh, sit at the feet of the sage and uh, and bask in the warmth of your of your wisdom, Trevor. So oh, ultimately, like that's the only bio I have. Oh yeah, flattery got you everywhere here. I'll, I'll tell you that's, that right now. That's oh. what I've learned in the podcasting world. But in this case, it's actually true. Hey, do you like uh, Slapshot? The movie? Yeah. Well, first of all, Paul Newman is amazing. Paul Newman is a really, really underrated cultural figure. I feel like. Um, I haven't seen it in like 20 years, but yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not even a hockey super fan. My co-host has been more of a dyed in the wool hockey super fan since birth. Um, but the team, the Oilers went on this playoff run in like 2006 and I jumped on the bandwagon at that point. And it was funny cause I grew up being this like kind of, uh, wallflowery, overly intellectual, tortured kind of like creative kid with bad clothes, bad breath and, and no fashion sense or self-confidence. And everyone, there's, I literally can guarantee you, everyone that went to high school or university with me would be fucking shocked to hear that I'm doing a hockey podcast because none of them knew me as a sports guy ever. I really just started that one. That was how I got into podcasting. And I started it because I just wanted a more irreverent take. I remember, I'll never forget being on like the roof of this building, talking to my friend about it. And I was like, we're talking about starting that podcast, getting into podcasting for the first time. And I said to him, you know what, man? Like we just got a, we got a Letterman this shit. We got to do the David Letterman show version of an Edmonton Oilers fan podcast. Um, and then, yeah, Night Rule, which you were so generous to come on, uh, what was that, that was back in December, and then you cross-posted it. Um, that's been around since, yeah, what is it, four or five months now? And I wanted to start that to, to just have wider conversations. Honestly, I have a lot of different interests, and I'm really interested in culture and politics and history, philosophy, art, like all kinds of stuff. So Night Rule was a good outlet for that. We actually just launched on YouTube. If people want to check that out, we did... Uh, I unlocked our, one of our episodes with the great Ben Burgess, where we talked about various science fiction for an hour. So if people want to check that out on YouTube, they should search for Night Rule. Should I just self-promote for the entire hour, you think? I mean, why not? I mean, I Would mean, that make for good content? Yeah, why not? Uh, we, we have this thing we do called um, the White Canon. I don't know if you've... Uh, mm. Yeah, I heard. Um, yeah, I heard that. That was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have an idea for a, another entry in that series. Actually, I wanted to talk to you about it sometime. Oh yeah, you can mention it now. We're gonna do an episode with Slapshot, and I was gonna see if you're interested in coming on for that one. Fuck yeah! I haven't watched it in so long, but I'm sure I would really enjoy it. And honestly, like, it's a. I remember it being a great film, and I thought so as a kid. So I can imagine it's gonna even be more fun this time. And uh, like, there's only like really like two hockey movies. It's like that, and then. Um, that Jay Bechamel Penn Goon series, which is also quite good. I don't, I don't know that one. That was more recent. That was actually the highest grossing Canadian film of all time, which is probably damning with faint praise. But he, uh, yeah, he cast uh, 
William Sean William Scott, the guy from American Pie, is the main character. In yeah, that. I remember him. I don't I feel like I would have. Leah Shriver is like the mentor who teaches him how to be a tough guy in the NHL, and I fucking love Leah Shriver. I don't know how to say his name. I'll never learn how to say his name. But that motherfucker is one of the best actors living for my money, pound for pound. He he is, but uh, he was weird in that X Men. Origins Wolverine movie. Well, like, he was a weird yeah. favorite too, and it wasn't his fault. Like some miscastings are just too hard to. Uh, Not as a deep cut, Trevor. That movie came out like 15, 20 years ago. Oh yeah. yeah, the whole movie was a mess. If I recall, yeah, the correctly. whole the whole movie was was a mess. I I don't know why. When I think of Lee Schreiber, it was it was him, right? That was oh the, yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, with big like mutton chops. The character he was playing was. A really cool character. He's a charismatic guy. It just wasn't Sabretooth. It was just weird. It was like just Lee Schreiber with with claws. It just was so bizarre to me. I don't know. I feel like with that one also in particular, the the shadow of the voice actor that played Sabretooth on the 90s cartoon looms really, really large because the voice actor in that series, and that series I actually think really holds up for the most part. Last season is complete garbage, but um, the voice actor for Wolverine in that. Did you ever watch that? I wasn't a big watcher of the series but i did watch it and um i mean the problem with the series was that you kind of had to watch it every week and i just didn't want to commit to it but mm. see uh, even at a young age you were you were very particular i can tell okay it wasn't so much that right it, it's part of the problem when it started it was really bad uh a lot of people don't know this they actually had to fix things in it because they made mistakes they actually had to like con- continuity errors and stuff like for example, uh, there's a scene. I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you an example. There's a scene where Morph is captured, right? In like the early episode. I think that's the first episode. Yeah, because he's only in like the first, and then a few others. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's like a few episodes, and then he's captured, and they have to go rescue him. And then there's a shot where he's standing next to them. Uh, well, to <laughs> well, to be honest, though, the, the quality standards back then, like I mean, you know, this is pre-internet pre, you know, everyone examining everything on online the next day and searching for the Starbucks cup in the shot. Like, to be honest, I think most of the viewership of the X-Men cartoon series from the 90s were just stoked to have something to watch that was of that ilk. Because TV kind of fucking sucked back then, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, but- I was a kid and I knew it fucking sucked. Oh, yeah, but no, no. This thing is, like, well-known. I mean, even mm. pre-nitpicking, pre-internet, like, it wasn't like a flash of the co- like the coffee cup. I mean, oh, it was, it was a I lot of mistakes. It was a lot of mistakes. Like, they had to, like, take the show off for a bit and retool it for a little bit and it came back with the mistakes gone like it was that it was that bad wow it was kind of like um okay maybe we kind of rushed this like there were whole backgrounds missing they would just be mm. they would just be That's talking hilarious. in front of nothing so then it came back after um a couple of episodes and a break and it was really good i heard but i just never came back to it because the first impression was like kind of bad and uh, okay i see that yeah no because i watched uh, i watched it in a bit of a like a bunch yeah i think if you watch the first season you would understand a little bit more like uh because it also like i remember some of the reading some of the wikipedia pages about it like the authors were really really passionate and excited about some of the themes they were able to deal with there were episodes that dealt with like religion and there were you know so i remember one writer being quoted as saying you know it was amazing to be able to deal with like a religious subject in a kid's cartoon um you know what was also really really good was the spider-man cartoon from also though you had to watch it every week you ever watch that shit yeah yeah I wasn't personally crazy about it, but but I'll tell you why. But um, going to this, yeah, I found the information, and th- this is it because I couldn't remember. It was aired as a sneak preview, so um, X Men didn't air as a flowing show at first. They had a sneak preview of the first arc, 
you know, kind of like to give you a taste of it. Then it was going to come back as a regular series. And uh, I read, I'm reading here, airing as a sneak preview on October the 31st, 1992, the original broadcast of the two night, Night of the Sent- Sentinels, so it was a two-parter, was woefully incomplete. Almost every single scene had some kind of animation error from coloring issues to continent to continuity while entire scenes were missing from um, the second half. Turns out the animation studio, ACOM, handed in the episode the day before it was due to air with no time for editing. So they actually got the episode a day before it aired. On October 30th, and this was the air, October 31st. They had no time to edit or look at it. They said, "Fuck it, we're running it." So people were colored wrong. <laughs> Characters were in the scene; they weren't supposed to be in the scene, and everything. And that scene, I'm, I probably they probably don't release it in the extras of the DVD because that embarrassing. Like I'm sure some weirdo on YouTube has the original airing on uh, somewhere on there. Like it's probably a deep cut you could probably find at conventions, but. It's probably never aired in that form since the sneak preview. But because of that, I remember thinking, oh, I'm not going to watch this. And I have to follow it every week. But everyone told me that the actual regular product was really, really good. Honestly, it was for the time. Um, but you know, this, and then it, it's interesting, though, because I think probably like the actual writing of once it got rolling and TV shows sometimes need some time to get rolling. That's definitely one element of, I think, the TV show format or the TV genre. Um, like even a show like Sopranos, there's differences in the first in the pilot episode. You know, things are named differently. The tone is maybe a little bit different. And even like season one versus season two is different. And Sopranos is one of my all time favorite shows. But here's a question for you, maybe to switch up to, to take to do a vector of this topic. Like, what do you think are like the, the, the thematic underpinnings of the X-Men series deep down? Like throw away all the movies and the glitz and the glamour and the gloss. Hmm, like, is it ultimately about like pubescent teenagers trying to self-actualize into a, an unkind, unforgiving, mutated, disgusting world that won't allow them to achieve their full human potential? Because that's what I think it is. That's really interesting. Um, well, first, let me finish the point about the Spider-Man sure. series. I didn't like the guy's voice too much. Oh, uh, uh, you know, Stan Lee was like a was a creative overseer of that whole show. Like every every episode had to go through him, which I think is probably why it had high quality. Oh, I didn't I didn't know that. But um, yeah, no, he was heavily involved. Oh, heavily involved. Yeah, something about that guy's voice. I wasn't Christopher Barnes or something. I wasn't crazy yeah. by his voice. It was okay. I can understand that. But I wasn't I wasn't crazy about it. But uh, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but he wasn't allowed to punch or kick people. For some reason, they had some kind of stipulation where he wasn't allowed to actually hit anybody. So if you ever notice, he doesn't hit anybody. Huh. Uh, That's weird. If you watch it again, uh, you'll notice that he doesn't punch anybody. He doesn't kick anybody. And it turned out they had some kind of rule on violence. So I'm like, like I noticed it right away. I'm like, why is he not? Because I used to really like the old... 60s cartoon? He was punching motherfuckers in that all the time. That's all he did. He would yeah, just like drive up in a taxi cab and then punch them with his fist. He didn't even do superhero shit in that show. Yeah, he didn't time. really do much. He would just give someone a punch. And yeah, I used to like that. I used to like the old comic books where he would do like these cool like flip kicks and everything. So I was, so was kind of annoyed that he was always like just webbing people and stuff like that. So that was the main thing that I didn't like about it. He was never punching or kicking. He was always like webbing people up and pulling a carpet or doing like weird See, that's a bizarre kind of like content code because you assume in American media, the rule is, okay, like we can't show 
cleavage or anything sexual at all, but we were fully happy to show decapitations and dismemberment of all kinds. Violence is okay. I'm surprised they actually had that kind of code. To be honest, the like real strength of that show is that it did really serialize. And by the end, it really was started doing really, really interesting storylines that would just arc over many, many, many episodes. Even like they did the multiverse thing near the end. I just remember like, even as a kid looking at that show and being like impressed by the amount of work put into it, just, you know, having, having been used to just a lower quality of media. I think like, you know, 90s kids cartoons, the bar was already pretty fucking low. So maybe it wouldn't stand up as much now. I mean, the animation was like fine and they clearly animated it in some kind of Asian studio, which I always like. Like it had a kind of look to it. I'm sure they sent it to like some Korean studio or something. It, it's you tickled you tickled my animation bone now because I listened to your last episode that got released on Attack on Titan, which I'm not behind on. But you were guys actually, do you want to finish your thought before I go on this tangent? Oh no, go ahead. I was gonna say you guys were asking on that episode, like what is the next big post Attack on Titan anime? And it's definitely fucking Demon Slayer. And night listeners of Night Rule will be well familiar with my rantings and ravings about Demon Slayer. I think it's fucking great. And I don't really like that many animes. Like, I'm not like a really big, really big anime head. And it might also be the same thing, because when I got into the Oilers, for example, I was in a room filled with ravenous fans. And I feel like if you're in a room filled with ravenous fans of something, and that's your introduction to something, it can really crystallize and, like, give you a dyed-in-the-wolf fandom for something. And right now, as far as I'm concerned, like, Demon Slayer's... What any, anyone that likes anime and wants to watch a good anime, they should be fucking watching it because like the fucking art is amazing. I, I think it actually has a real emotional core that a lot yeah. of shows lack. Have you watched it? Yeah, I watched the first season and I'm starting to read read the manga. And the movie just came out. Yeah, I didn't see the movie yet, but I heard the movie is like canon. Like it's actually... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a continuation. It's... it's uh, uh, to be honest, I haven't actually seen the movie fully. I've only sat in on it a little bit, um, and I didn't even have subtitles or anything. But like watching like ten minutes of it, I was just like, "Yeah, fuck, this movie looks great." Like I really feel as though that show is about the destruction of family ultimately at its core. Yeah, and the loss of family and the loss of love in one's life. And I really feel like as a through line, it imbues that whole show with like a level of impact that a lot of stuff just doesn't have. And then plus on top of that, it's you know there's there's a lot of really amazing action and like just moments of like sheer artifice where, yeah, it, it blows my mind. I mean, uh, again, listeners of Night Rule, patreon.com slash Night Rule, search for us on YouTube, on Twitter, at Pod Rule. Can I just promote the show the whole time? Yeah, go ahead. Um, Demon good. Slayer. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, I'm, I'm honestly, to be honest, it's surreal. The fact that you were like, hey, can we do this as a Champagne Sharks episode? It's like, there's a part of me that's just like, dude, is this my life now? Because... Uh, <laughs> Like, am I qualified to be doing this? I'm not. I'm not even sure. Some guy on Twitter recently said, "I don't know why guys in plaid shirts are like like people like listening to them on their shows or like what qualifies them." So of course I'm wearing my plaid shirt today. I like the plaid plaid shirt thing. It's just a (laughs) strong visual. The um, the Spider Man animated series had this Japanese studio called. Tokyo Movie, I forget how to pronounce it. Tokyo Movie Shinseida. Let me get the name right. It's it's Tokyo Movie Shinsa. Then had a bunch of Korean studios, and uh, on those on those old cartoons and stuff, they used to always have multiple studios to do different episodes, mm-hmm. and you can tell. Well, you know they had multiple studios work on Attack on Titan at first, even too, right? I hear that. Oh, I didn't know they had multiple studios working. I I know things like no, so their own stuff did because they had uh, they had a cheap studio do eighty to ninety percent of the show, 
And then they had the best studio who was known for doing the best work do all the action scenes, which is why you can see how awesome the fucking action scenes are in Attack on Titan season one and two. You're not smart. It makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, you're not smart about that is that usually the technique, or at least the old school one, is to give different studios different episodes. So what happens is you have one episode that is terrible looking, then another episode looks great. And God forbid there's action in the terrible episode. You're stuck with the episode that has terrible action. And I think what they're doing is smart to just figure out, okay, if it's for talking, why waste a good studio on just a regular talking scene? That's just so, so what you're saying is throughout the show, they would mix the studios within single episodes? Yeah, something yeah, like smart. that. I mean, that's what I heard at least. Yeah, it makes, it makes sense, right? Like division of labor. Um, but at the same time, like I remember I had friends who were just like, yeah, the action scenes in that show are great, but everything else looks like total shit. I mean, I think like, but who knows? Who knows who's like, who can actually discern and who's just fronting? I remember like, I've had some involvement in the video game industry and I, I remember telling a joke to a friend once where like I was talking about how you'll read a video game review a lot of the times and people will say like, oh, then the controls are super sloppy and like inaccurate. And I said to him like, none of these motherfuckers can tell if the controls are off or inaccurate. Like they're just fucking pretending. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, like the animation is so bad in the non-action scenes. But have you ever have you ever met anyone who works in animation or like talked to them? I have a friend who, uh, who was in that, that, uh, that industry for a while and it was interesting hearing him talk about it. No, what kind of insights did he have? Um, shout out to Galaxian, G-I-L-L-A-X-I-A-N on Twitch. He streams uh, classic arcade games. He was telling me, like, basically it's a young man's game. So um, if you work in an animation studio, you are working your fucking ass off. Like, they work you to the bone. And, it, and, it, and it's meticulously planned, meticulously um, kind of portioned out so that you're expected, for example, to provide, like, X number of frames over an X number of time. Is he in so like an animation studio or a foreign one? This was in Canada, in okay. Vancouver. Um, but I'm sure it's it's a version of the same thing in other places as well. I mean, obviously, like it's cheaper to probably do it in, uh, in, in certain places, but it sounds like it's a grueling, grueling fucking job to have, which yeah. is why he said it was a young man's game. I know the Japanese ones are especially grueling. Well, the Japanese generally, I mean, I don't want to seem like I'm kind of like painting a culture with a broad brush, but a lot of Japanese creators seem to really go to the ends to create a lot of things, which is, I think, why I like a lot of their shit. Like, uh, to be honest, I've been exposed to a lot of Japanese shows lately, like uh, Midnight Diner is one of my all-time favorite shows now. That's on Netflix. Um, is that a animation or is that a live action? No, no, that's that, that's that's live action. Um, they made a f- few seasons uh, in Japan and then Netflix bought it and financed a few more. That's kind of got a very like Chekhovian um, food kind of theme, but also kind of the same thing I was talking about, about having an emotional core. Um, I think I was talking about this with Ben Burgess on an episode. I don't think we talked about this before, but is it a reality show scripted? No, 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 no. God, no, it's scripted. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's got a very well-crafted thing that it's doing. Like it's got a very, uh, if you've ever read any Chekhov, I think it's, it it rings, it rhymes with that. It's, It's about short little slice of life stories that really go deeply into human behavior and psychology and what motivates people, you know, and, and basically the setup is midnight diner. This guy has a diner. He opens at midnight every day. People come there to eat. He doesn't have a menu. He'll make whatever they want as long as he has the ingredients. And it's a very like, kind of like a, a subdued tone generally, but the emotional payload per episode, like for example, there's one episode where there's a guy that wants to be a manga artist and he's working really hard and he's, he's drawing and writing all these mangas and trying to get into the business, but like not having any, not having any success. And it's just completely fucking destroying him. And to be honest, like, I don't know if I've seen that story told in like an American or Canadian or European or 
a show from somewhere else. It's like the, the, the grim reality of an unforgiving um, situation like that. The, actually, Midnight Diner is based on a manga, though. It's not an anime, but it's based on a manga. Oh, interesting. Um, there was one Japanese show I was watching, but it was really dumb, but in a good way. Like One thing I like about Japanese shows is Japanese aren't afraid, uh, to me, to have really, really dumb shows. I feel like it's... I, like, like America has dumb shows. I'm not saying America doesn't have dumb shows, but America... But they're not trying. They're, they're not... Yeah, they're not yeah. It. I feel like America always wants to think that the show is not as dumb as it is, even if it ends up... Well, there's, yeah. there's no meta layer in, you know... Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like Japanese people will, in my experience, have a show that's clearly trying to be dumb, but it's smart. As in, they're very smart about the dumbness of the show. Like, they put a lot of references and thoughts into like the dumb gags and everything. It's, it's, uh, so this show is called Massage Therapist Joe. No, 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 Massage Detective Joe. And it's a detective who's also a, um, a genius of massage is like a massage genius. It's a really weird premise. And he solves crimes uh, through massages. And it's wow. I love weirdest, it. It's on Amazon prime. It's like the weirdest dumbest show. And, um, <laughs> and I mean, and, solving and, crimes through massages. That's, that's more interesting than like 90% of the new shows that I hear about. What he'll do is he'll give a massage, right? And as he gives the massage, things will come up. Like he's like in the, in your back hamstring, there was a knot that, you know, could only right. have been gotten it's by, the, you know. The muscle memory, know, totally. Yeah, you know, which means, which ties into this clue that happened, which means you're the murderer and stuff like that. So, he, like, he'll massage, like, four suspects and find, and find. But he's also, like, a prodigy of massage. So, uh, he has those adventures. And then suddenly he gets an overarching plot with the mm, identity of his mm. father and what's that called again say that one more time massage detective joe it's really really <laughs> it's really really i, gotta stupid, check that shit out. But, I mean but, i um, think probably like we should be careful to not like paint um paint like japan with one brush to be honest i think it's yeah. mostly just that coming from the, the the kind of denatured homogenized monoculture of that is north america i think any cultural output from somewhere else is going to have a nuance and a kind of uh, a more interesting um patina of uh, like themes and whatnot, because to be honest, like we've really kind of like existed. Like the problem with I think North American media to a large extent is that is that success uh, is what everyone wants to imitate, and there's a lot of derivation. And of course, derivation is an element in all art and cultural output. It's like yeah, I I, I just I, I think the things we're talking about don't necessarily apply to just Japanese cultural output, but I have happened to been really impressed with some stuff there. What else have you watched from Japan recently? And now I'm curious. Massage Detective Joe sounds like a fucking Hell, like hell, a lot of fun. Um, I haven't watched a lot because part of the problem is that, and and this is this is a fault with me. This is a problem. It's a habit I have to break of like you know watching things while reading text or tweeting or doing emails. Like, mm -hmm. so yeah, I need to have like yeah. undivided attention because of the subtitles. So that keeps you from ending up watching a lot of. Japanese stuff because a lot of the stuff has subtitles and I'll be like, okay, I'm going to need some undivided time. No, I need some time to give undivided attention to the show and read the subtitles and I'll keep putting it off for something dumb on Netflix. That is, yeah. Being well, sometimes, sometimes you just, sometimes you just want the great, great American barbecue showdown. It's like 10 PM. You're winding down. Um, if you want uh, another the director I've gotten really into the last year is um, this guy called Kareda 
And I actually wanted to do my first ever Night Rule uh, movie watch party, party based on one of his movies because it's actually free on YouTube. It's the first movie I ever saw by him. I was like a 17-year-old randomly going to see movies at the art house in my hometown. Um, and it's a film called Afterlife. And that's on YouTube. I think people should definitely check out that and a lot of his work too. Like his films, when you were talking about having to like concentrate and actually like give the requisite attention to what you're watching, like his films definitely have that aspect. It's like, you know, there's some directors where, you know, like there's a lot of directors that are really good at composing imagery. And there's a lot of directors that are really good at making imagery that's memorable. But I feel like there's a very few that are able to make imagery that actually imbues the story that you're watching with like a certain tone and a certain feeling and something that sticks with you afterwards that you remember as a very specific type of imagery and a type of feeling that it gave you. I think David Lynch would be another example of that. I think his films do that. He won the Palme d'Or at Cannes for, for Shoplifters, which is a heartbreakingly beautiful movie. And uh, But in terms of Netflix shows, actually, like for the listeners who might actually have access to Netflix, I would also definitely recommend a Japanese series called Smoking about a, uh, a group of uh, kind of like hitmen for hire. I watched another one called Homunculus that was quite a really interesting movie up until maybe the last 10 minutes. Um, about a guy who gets a hole drilled in his head and then he can see, when he walks around on the street, he can see people's internal injuries manifested physically on their on their bodies, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, Erased is another good one. But it, uh, now I'm just like awkwardly just going through recommendations. I wanted to ask you, like, how are you doing right now, by the way? Are you languishing? I'm languishing. Um, I go... I go up and down. Yeah, I go I go up and down like um it's kind of weird like I'm languishing in some ways but I don't want to go back to any office. So it's a weird thing. It's like I'll complain that I'm languishing and then I hear stories like hey, New York's going to launch fully in July and I'll be thinking, "Oh man, can we get a a non-fatal spike, you know, like like a spike doesn't kill anybody, <laughs> but, you know, just never a spike to like extend it a little bit more. It's uh, it's, you know, it's, it's like when you're hoping for like a party to be canceled, but like writ large on like a social level. Because to be honest, like you can't blame people for having a lack of enthusiasm for the kind of social milieu overall. But I hate to break it to you, I think society will resume in some quasi normal form, albeit with like a annual coronavirus uh, vaccines. Yeah, definitely. But it's like, I know there's no logical or medical reason for this, but I just have this like dream of, I just have this dream of um, bars going back to normal, but uh, workplaces not. So it's like, you know, you can still go to the cafe and meet friends or, you know, go out for drinks in a backyard somewhere. But uh, so you stay at home, you work, then at six, everyone texts each other and goes to the neighborhood bar. That would be like my dream, my dream existence, you know, like work remotely. Well, that would be, and go, and then go yeah, that would actually be an intuitive way to set up one's life, you know? Yeah. You're kind of all in the same place. Um, do you go to an office though? Like, were you going to an office at any point in the last few years? Cause you, you do, you do other stuff, right? Uh, yeah. But, but you know what, you know what was happening was, um, what was happening is the last, the last year being home freed up my schedule to, you know, I could work remotely and I was able to like book guests, do all this stuff because you can't be in an office and like booking guests nonstop and, you know, take taking breaks to, to do stuff. So it um has created like a level of productivity where I'm like, oh, if I have to go back to an office, am I really gonna? Yeah. And I've gotten people I'm... used to this level of um output. So like I would really like to be able to like, I don't know. I feel like in general, Nothing is as good as if you can do it like full time, anything, you know, I would actually, I, I would, I would, I would put it more like 
it's like you need to achieve that state of flow. And I know that's probably an overused term. Um, but like if you're able to do that in a working from home situation, like you say, your schedule is a little more amenable to all the things you're trying to do. I think the more you can get into that flow, the better. And I think for some people, you probably need to be in an office to do that. And for some people who have like a very social intensive type job, um, it's really hard for them to do that remotely. I'm like a bit of a loner, so, but at the same time, like part of me is just craving like a water cooler, you know, just having a fucking conversation with someone and joking around while you're pouring a goddamn cup of coffee. Like that's, kinda, I kind of miss it. Yeah, no, I miss it too. A water cooler is, uh, water cooler is pretty good, but I mean like, so, it's so weird now anyway, because in some ways Twitter is like the water cooler of the world and oh god don't say that that's the most horrible thought i've ever heard yeah yeah i think we've actually brought this up before uh and yeah we've talked trash on twitter before yeah yeah and it's like the most toxic uh water cooler it's like a water cooler just spiked with like um it's a water cooler with no hydration it's a water cooler where people just talk shit (laughs) yeah yeah It's, it's a water cooler full of like just 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 polluted water and laxatives and and rusty water it's, it's, it's terrible and it's definitely not a, it's definitely not uh it's definitely not a replacement for that stuff but yeah that's kind of what it's become it's like a pseudo water cooler that is awful it's not it's like um pseudo nourishment or whatever yeah I, I don't know i think a lot of companies are going to be like this this whole pandemic thing is like nothing could have inspired a more deep consideration of remote work and like the nature of work and and do we really need this office where so and so can have this long meeting where they look really important and they can lord x and y z over people personally i think for some things you it's really really valuable to have that physical proximity um but for some things it's probably not and it's it's probably good generally as long as we can actually like figure out how to navigate you know uh working from home and what that entails i I think it could be actually be a really positive outcome of this but again Midway through every podcast, or at some point, I try and have a positive thought before having a super depressing thought at the end. So don't worry, we'll get to we'll get to something really desperate at the end. Still, I I mean, an even scarier water cooler is uh, Clubhouse. Like like that. If you think Twitter's a yeah, what the fuck? I, uh, you're you're my only exposure to Clubhouse. Do I, I need to join? Like uh, it, it sounds like it's just the bloom has come off the rose. Is it, what I'm hearing. It had potential to be good. I'm starting to think the problem is just people. I just think maybe just people just suck. Like 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 maybe any network that has too many of them just uh, spoils. Like it seems. I just think there's a peak amount. I feel like maybe people are just one of those ingredients where like nutmeg. Like nutmeg really makes things taste good. But if you put like a hair too much nutmeg, it starts tasting like soap. For for people who ever use use nutmeg, I feel like maybe people are like that. Like they're great. You I don't know. We've, we've, yeah. we've talked about this before actually, and I think. I don't think it's people that are the problem, but like, and this is something I think about when I'm like really, you know, I've, I've smoked a doobie and it's, it's 1130 and I'm having an existential crisis at some point. I'm thinking about the universe. Like, I think like as a species, human beings are really distorted and really programmed incorrectly. And, and there's all these learned behaviors that are really problematic. Like when we go on a new social media platform, for example, and this is something I think about a lot in my professional life as well. You ask the question like, what the fuck am I here for? What are we trying to accomplish? And ultimately, with most social media right now, you're trying to accomplish um, like self-soothing, self-promotion, self-validation, and and if, and if that's all you're trying to accomplish, every social media platform is just going to be total shit. You know, and ending boredom, like that's a big, that's a big, yeah, thing. and yeah, a desperate fucking chasm of of loneliness and depression that you're staring at every morning when you fucking wake up at the start of the day, like. There's a number called. I mean, there's this concept called uh, Dunbar's 
number. And I think the field is... The number of people you can keep in your head? It's like 70-something? Some uh, Keep in your head or maybe keeping your social circle. I think it's um, the amount of relationships that uh, people can can maintain. And yeah, and Dunbar's yeah. It came up with this idea that we max out at 150 substantial relationships, like uh, substantial relationships being acquaintances and friends. So yeah. I, think, I think acquaintances I mean, I, um, count as well. Like, like I think just yeah. contacts, like having someone on your phone doesn't count, but it as far as having like a stable, cohesive group or having a stable thing, and he said that um, people have a different range range of it, but they say like even in big companies that have thousands to millions of people, they tend to naturally just subdivide either officially or unofficially into groups of about 150. Uh, so he's, he felt like 150 is it. And I think uh, that might be the problem. I think it might not be people, but I just think we're, humanly programmed to be able to have that many friends or or ties like 20,000 people who can like interact with you on on your social media account 1 million people leaving comments and and all these different uh parasocial mutual follower relationships i think that maybe that's the problem because it gets so toxic but like say something like clubhouse when it started and it was small it was pretty good it like the only thing that really happened to it was growing to me. Mm, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I think there's like a ton of truth in what you're talking about. And I think it's like important to realize that like, we're kind of used to a certain type of thing. And, and certainly there's like physiological, biological um, factors at play here. But I think, I think if we actually were a little more rational and we actually were a little more long-term in our thinking as a species, we would probably be capable of plugging into a social interaction with a larger group, or at least like kind of weaving a tapestry that could, fit together a little bit well like i don't think gophers only know the 150 gophers that they know and if they happen to be like dropped by a plane somewhere across the country that they would like see a gopher and be like i don't fucking care about this gopher i feel like we're like i feel like we've actually lost a lot of our i don't know some some, some something about our animal essence ever since i like heard about hegel and this concept of species being and like a species having uh, an essence and a, and a life unto itself i've stopped i've, I've, I've really started to wonder like what is it about human beings that makes them human beings that makes them a species and like maybe there's some stuff that we've um forgotten about and i think i think there's a long a long a huge number of things on that list well one problem with the gopher example the way i understand dunbar's number is not like you hit a certain amount that you just can't process anymore um but it's more like as some relationships get closer others will start to kind of uh fall off the map a little bit like like it's hard to, to maintain it in that sense like you can't if you try to actively maintain it and spin all those plates you know eventually a few of them will naturally start but also it's not like a hard number like you hit 150 and you're done like you know uh i think he in some cases uh says and goes high is like you know in the 250 range you know it's a uh, very context dependent and that's that's what i really like dig about the the concept is Ultimately, I think it's 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 saying to people through this analysis and through this data that they've collected that you know what, like you need to actually fucking invest in your relationships and they're meaningful. And it's not just a quantitative, additive, mathematical process where you add more fucking Facebook friends and somehow that gets you somewhere. It's like at a certain point, there's diminishing returns. And yeah, like you said, if you if if you try and be really close friends with more than X number of people, you're just going to fail. So. Sadly, I mean, how many people do you think actually fucking are maxing out their Dunbar number, though? 
That's my question to you. Like, I mean, I've got maybe a dozen close friends that I would count, you know? <laughs> yeah, but... Plus, yeah. like, several uh, anxieties and... and uh, and, uh, but if online, but if you're counting, if you're counting online uh, friendships and acquaintances with that, I think a lot of people are probably overloading. Because I think I think social media is kind of a pseudo connection, and I think that's kind of the problem: the quantity of them, but also maybe the quality of a lot of them. Um, because well, the very related question is the quality and the quantity. Like, at what point do those individual voices become a chorus? At what at what point do just as your mind start to collate together, you know, positive reinforcement of all types, negative reinforcement from all, from all types, you know. And then I think at that point, probably like your capacity even for having a, a high number of close relationships is probably diminished, right? Like if you've got 20, if you've got, if you've got more than 20,000 Twitter followers and you're regularly checking Twitter, like that shit is fucking up your brain for sure. Oh, yeah. I'm saying that as someone with a collected total of, I think, uh, 1,980 Twitter followers, and it's definitely already fucking up my brain, so... I'm extrapolating a little bit. You know, it's so funny you say that because I was telling someone that I think when I got above 2000, it stopped getting fun, but it, it wasn't even like an overnight thing. It was progressively getting less fun because after 2000, you start getting a lot of people who are just living to give a bad faith interpretation of everything uh, you say. So like once I got over 2000, there was just a lot of, so what you're saying is like basically nothing that starts with so what you're saying is, is going to be what you're actually saying. I, I don't know why, but it's just a rule of thumb <laughs> that I found. If yeah, someone starts a sentence with, so what you're saying is nine times out of eight, that's going to be something that you were not saying at all. And the worst is when someone um, adds the counter argument too, to what you weren't saying. So it's like, so what you're saying is, uh, is, is this, well, I don't think such and such, blah, 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 blah. It's like, Oh God. Yeah. So um, like, what kind of, what kind of fucking like universe we're we living in where criticism and discussion and dialogue and collaboration is restricted to whatever the fuck it is, 144 characters. Like where we're Plato and, Socrates limited to 144 characters. Like, I think this is a big problem. Like, and you've talked about this a lot as well. Like a lot of the media you consume, you feel like it's just, this book is really just a collection of tweets and it's really shallow and it doesn't go deep. And it's like, is that, is that what like a novel is? Um, actually, I don't know if you listened to a recent, um, this is a good segue into a topic I want to talk about. I'm bringing out the big book, um, on a recent episode of night rule, by the way, Trevor, like champagne sharks, like totally inspired me to become a podcaster by the way. And I was like, it really reignited my interest in culture and politics to, to a large extent. So I should thank you for that really quickly. Um, but there was a really interesting quote I read on a recent podcast with a former professor of mine, um, Julie Rack, about like the novel as a genre. And as, as we're talking about this kind of denatured pseudo novel that might be coming out based on a bunch of Twitter threads, it might be really interesting to, um, to talk about it. But yeah, this is from uh, Discourse in the Novel, 1934 from Mikhail Bakhtin. And I thought it was it's kind of interesting because also with TV, I feel like TV is, is in a way a kind of like offspring of the novel, um, at least in its current form. So yeah, this is Mikhail, Mikhail Bakhtin. And this is from, yeah, Literary Anthology, Literary Theory and Anthology, edited by Julie Rifkin, Michael Ryan, page 32. The novel, quote, the novel can be defined as a diversity of social speech types, sometimes even diversity of languages, and a diversity of individual voices artistically organized. The internal stratification of any single national language into social dialects, characteristic group behavior, professional jargons, generic languages, languages of generations and age groups, languages of the authorities of various circles and of passing fashions, languages that serve the specific socio-political purposes of the day or even the hour. Each day has its own slogan, its own vocabulary, its own emphasis. 
dash. This internal stratification present in every language is of its historical existence is the indispensable prerequisite for the novel as a genre. I was trying to to process that. Can you unpack it a little bit? Well, it's like what he's really saying is that something like a, a novel can only spring from a society where there's this really developed and also very stratified differentiation between different social groups, different social speech types, different uh, forms of language. And and I think what he argues, and hopefully I'm interpreting this correct, thank you, Professor Rack, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, she was just on Night World recently, uh, but it's like... Did you give the name of the book, by the way, in case people want to get... Yeah, 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 no, I did, okay. I did. Literary Theory and Anthology, revised edition, uh, edited by Julie Rifkin, Michael Ryan, and one of the only books that I've held on to for my university days. But it was interesting, because when I read that, I thought, oh, that makes perfect sense, like, that's why novels that I really enjoy kind of have the form they have where there's different voices, there's different characters, they speak differently. Um, they kind of have their own, the life of their own and also comment on social realities um, that are existent in the, in the world that I know that I see around me. And I think that's also why things happen where, you know, like a novelist is writing a novel and characters kind of come out of their own control and they seem to do their own thing. Like a lot of writers will say this, they'll say, you know, I started this story, I was writing it. And then all of a sudden this character just did something I didn't expect. At least good writers say that. Yeah. Um, And I think there's like this, I think as a, like a, a good novel and by extension, perhaps a really good TV show is something that can kind of encapsulate Again, he says artistically organized, so that's the the work of the writer to artistically organize this diversity of speech types. And I wonder if like that's what makes a show like The Sopranos so amazing. That's what makes a show like uh, I don't know. I don't know if you're a big Breaking Bad guy. I'm a big Americans guy. Wire, I still like, although there's there's a lot of Wire skepticism that's coming up now. I know actually, you for example, you're on record as saying that you thought Wire was like a guy who hired a bunch of good writers, and that that's basically what he accomplished. Um, Something like that. I'm not sure. I- I'm not sure I said that, but well, I might have. Well, because he got heralded as this like poet laureate of like the the of, of the slums and whatnot. Oh, and oh like, yeah. Kind of well, well, this this is kind of what I wondered. Um, I'm trying to go off memory. I'm really bad at remembering stuff that I've said. My feeling with him was after seeing how he writes on Twitter, he just seems like such a dumb lib sometimes that I I'm curious about how the show is going to hold up when I rewatch it and I have a feeling that, that the show might be a lot more um, centrist, liberal horribleness than I really thought. And also there's some things in it that I think are very two thousands that would jump out now as kind of bad. Like for example, somebody reminded me of a scene where they fool uh, these black kids into thinking that a copy machine was a lighting. Oh, that's the, that's the, that's the cold open for the very last season. Yeah, they they trick him into thinking the photocopy machine is a uh, a light detector. It's a light detector, and, and then the last li- the last line of that scene is uh, the bigger the lie, the more they believe. Yeah, yeah, and 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 first off, like that line, looking back, is so fake deep. Like you know, that's another thing I hate. Like it's so in the first scene of the first season, there's that line. You know, this is America. Uh, you gotta let him play. And, and that's the last. No, that's the last line of the cold open for season one. Yeah, it's the last one. line of yeah. cold open. This for is America, season. man. Yeah, this yeah. is America, man. You know, and and I feel like it kind of became self parody. Like I feel like that that line by season seven, it was just like 
they were just trying to recreate that first line from season one over and over. Like, they, you know, like, uh, Farron got shit to do with it. I think it's another one. There's, there's a lot of lines in it. And I was one of those people that totally would repeat those lines in, like, texts. And, like, there's this thing that used to happen where a line would happen, you know, like, like I'm Rich Bitch from Dave Chappelle. And everyone would just keep saying it to each other, like, like they wrote it and discovered it. You know, and I feel like the wire had a bunch of those. And I just feel like I'm worried a lot of it wouldn't age as well as I remember it. And, and some scenes like that in retrospect seem kind of racist, you know, uh, not kind of it, it is racist. The whole thinking that it's a copy machine, um, using the copy machine as a lie detector and all that stuff. And the tweets that he does on Twitter and the way that he um, writes like, um, here, here, fuck Muppet. Uh, we're going, uh, if you want to, if you want to, uh, talk theory with me, twat waffle, go eat a dick or whatever the thing he says. He writes this really weird, corny writing. I'm like, uh, oh. I haven't checked out his Twitter, but that's, oh my bad. God. You haven't yeah. seen his Twitter? His Twitter is horrible. Nothing has so turned me off from somebody at, like his Twitter has retroactively ruined the show for me without me rewatching the show. Like I'm afraid to rewatch the show after seeing his Twitter because. Well, here's a, here's a question for you because like, this is the thing about TV. That, that is different than a lot of other art forms, right? Like, uh, especially now, as vis-a-vis, like, uh, versus, like, the before the golden age of TV, like, you know, um, you, have a, you have a situation where the creator of the show is going to be online and be uh, interacted with by people. They're going to ask them questions. It's like, you know, prior to that, like, in a lot of cases, the only interaction an artist will have with someone is just their art. They're like, this is what I'm trying to say. I said it through the art. I don't have to tweet. I don't have to retweet you to try and make my point. And I actually think, in a weird way, that's probably one of the things that is creating a kind of de-evolution in the genre of television and even the novel where it's like, you know what, like uh, people are going to read my book and they're also going to read my tweets. They're also going to see my Facebook and my parlor. And that's all part of the same thing. And that shit isn't going to age well. That's that's impossible to translate into future generations. A hundred years from now, 500 years from now, like, you know, I might not, I might not be super into Wordsworth. And I'm not. But people are still reading that shit hundreds of years later. And I think it's going to be really hard, except for very ex- exceptional cases for television as a genre to really endure, because it's always going to be. And, and again, that one of the things Bakhtin talked about, he was talking about like uh, the, 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 the speech of, of a moment or the slogans of the day. And I feel like something like television, especially in the age of Twitter and social media, is really, really prone to that. So it will affect how it ages. I think also like David Simon was, was really quite consciously trying to make like a visual novel um and so it's going to seem probably more literary than would be kind of realistic but i haven't, I haven't watched it in a few years but i have watched the wire like in all honesty like four times through i like a lot of his other follow-up shows as well but like i think i think they're valid criticisms and i think you know understanding how you know some like how many things from 2003 are you going to look at totally fucking differently right now like it was a whole different, it was, it was like a different fucking universe in 2003. Like <laughs> the world has changed multiple times. We've, we've been crushed by agonizing, paralyzing psychological defeats multiple times since 2003, you know, Yeah. as a society. I mean, 2014 is a totally different world. I mean, we get different worlds on a way shorter cycle than, than we used to. I mean, there's things that I've seen. And that's seen. a problem. That's a problem. Oh, yeah. There's things that I've seen come out in 2018 where I think, oh my God, you get so canceled for that now. And it's not even a full three years ago. Well, speaking of which, like, excuse me, and I, I hate to bring this up in a way because like, to be honest, I've listened to a lot of champagne sharks and I'm, I'm self-conscious in, in the sense of like, I don't want to ask Trevor to comment on like X issue of the day facing like black people in America. 
But like, did we all just fucking suddenly like realize that the 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 Golden Globes voting committee didn't have like any black members? Like that shit's been going on for decades, you know. Like, I'm not the first person to say this, but like. <laughs> It seems a little disingenuous that like everyone's piling on when it's like none of the none of the motherfuckers were paying attention to the fact that that no one in this seventy plus person group was a person of color or like whatever up until now, you know. Something I wonder too, right, is this idea of the Oscars and the Golden Globes is such an important institution and whatever. Like people will be like, "Oh my god, this thing won the Oscars! I can't believe it! It's such crap and so bad!" And I gotta keep wondering why why does it matter if it's bad because creates the like for example if you complain about how much of a bad choice the oscars made or how you disdain the oscars or whatever in a strange way you're reinforcing you're still buying in you're still buying into the system of like the oscars should be x yeah 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 the oscars should be x it means something or by by rebelling against the oscars and not and not doing the Oscars, you're doing something notable. Like, like for example, if you announce, oh, I can't believe you watched the Oscars. The Oscars don't matter. I consciously avoid the Oscars, you know, even by saying it's something that I think is worth boycotting in a weird way is by defining yourself by the negation of it still in a way kind of gives it um, importance. Oh, it gives a lot of, yeah, a lot of prescience. Like, um, I think, first of all, like I haven't watched the Oscars in years. When I was a kid, actually, I would watch it, I think, a lot. Um, I was a bit of a like, quote unquote film buff as a young child. But, um, you know, once you reach a certain age and you realize all the amazing filmmakers that have never gotten a fucking like whiff of any Oscar attention, it, it, it demythologizes it in that way. But I think in a lot of ways, like the, the Oscars, like a lot of other elements in our society are kind of like this performative ghost of a belief in, in meritocracy and stuff and the idea that the system works and it matters how that the, the decisions that that system makes, especially like in this sense, like I, I don't know if I've seen the last few Best Picture winners. I saw Parasite. I didn't see Green Book, but like I don't know. It's weird. It's like on the one hand, I think it's very childish and immature to say, "Oh, I just I just ignored the Oscars entirely," as though it's not some kind of important cultural output that people actually pay attention to. But at the same time, if you put stock in it as like, "Oh, this is actually some kind of meritocratic process," it's like, "Come on, give me a fucking break!" Like as a film buff. I think any film buff knows the Oscars are kind of like a separate lane, but it's weird. Like I, I think, I think this is a, also an element at the core of liberalism that people are seeking out this way to buttress their belief in, in meritocracy and that the, the system quote unquote works and progressivism and reformism and incremental change. Like these are things that people really need to believe in on a very deep level, because if they don't believe in them, the whole fucking tapestry becomes unwoven. And I think believing in things like the Oscars or SNL or whatever else is, is, is a big component of that. I think also, and this is the thing that I struggle with and a trap that I think I still fall into, but that I've only recently, you know, started examining as as whatever. But there's this kind of thing where when you just keep talking about how bad SNL is, and I am guilty of doing this, or you talk about bad this system is or that system is, it yeah, implies kind of a glory days when it wasn't that. And to a degree, I mean, I do think things probably were better for a lot of these things, but probably never as good as I'm making them out to be, or these systems were never really merit- meritocracies or 
really really fair like like the whole thing is just kind of poisoned from the from the beginning but, but there's like a lot of things if you stop and think about them like for example somebody was saying oh mark mcguire and sammy sosa should have like asterisks by the records because they um did steroids but then someone said well babe ruth um played in, in a segregated league so there were no black people so should he have asterisks because he wasn't playing against um everybody or the best like that wasn't unfair advantage you know and to be honest this this shit pisses me off because it's like people are and and this is actually kind of bouncing off of i think i heard uh zizak comment on this on a recent ben burgess give them an argument shout out to ben burgess stream it's like because he was talking about sexuality and how we've we've reached this point where people are just like oh you know like these are my kinks and this is what i'm into and and you know i'm i'm x y and z identity and blah 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 and and zizak was talking about how that that entails this whole assumption that we're all just, you know, uh, self-contained, self-regulating, equally empowered individuals that have, you know, all, all this knowledge at our disposal and we're just acting completely consciously. It's like, no, motherfucker, like, again, there's nothing more unequal than treatment of unequal. And when people don't recognize the fact that they exist in a world where there's power relations and where there's a subconscious and where there's actual, like, complicated consequences of really, you know, uh, debilitating kind of psychological environments, you know, it's not as though you can just say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a fully empowered individual. And I think that's actually another thing that's at the core of things like the Oscars or at the core of things like liberalism. It's like, oh, you know, like we're, we're fully empowered, fully self-aware, fully in control individuals. But like, that is such a fantasy, you know? Is that analysis rooted in uh, Michel Foucault? Um, I mean, I've read Foucault. Uh, you know, I, I, mean, maybe. I, I mean, what Zizek was saying, I mean, whether rooting it by agreeing with it or by disagreeing with it i mean i haven't i haven't read his his writings on sexuality in, in decades but i think i think probably there's there's probably some something that rhymes there it's like because sexuality is something that really demonstrates really well and again zizak talks about this on, on ben burgess's show where he's saying you know sexuality is always repressed it's always perverted it's always complicated it's always weird because it speaks to the intersection maybe like a bad term to use in this context but the the combination of who we think we are and who we think we're we you know what we think our existence is in this world and what it actually is and and it's a perfect illustration of how people will believe in some ways fucking anything they want you know to get what they want and I'm, uh, I th- it frustrates me to a large extent that people actually think like oh, okay well like the system's like mostly fine and we all kind of like are like roughly equal. Therefore, if we just kind of buttress the system and just reform it a little bit and improvement, improve it, and we make sure that there's more uh, diversity in the voting committee of the Golden Globes, somehow like that's going to make it all better. It's like, no, you have to change. There has to be more fundamental change than that. We actually have to like imagine new possibilities. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one go to again patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two be good